Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall. And today uh, I have Paul Serafini on the podcast. I had to have got your name right this time because uh, every time since I'm kicking myself. You did it, man. <laughs> I, was, I, I can read. <laughs> uh, I don't even know where my head went when I've said your name previously because when I read it this time around, I was like, how did I ever say this wrong? Because it's not a hard last name. I must have just thought like you were really kind of unique or special or something. <laughs> Dude, I agree. I, I look at it and I'm like, this is so just <laughs> yeah. just there, you know, and, and it, it gets fucked up a lot, actually. So um, yeah. good. At least uh, I'm not the only <laughs> one, although not good because uh, it's sometimes frustrating when you are the person have your name always screwed up but anyway um for those of you who don't know who paul is because it's actually been a while um we've now had i think over 250 episodes on the podcast and you were 146 so it's been a long long time since paul's been on the show but i've been meaning to get him back on because uh, i'm always following paul on social media and he's doing good work and so uh, i i just needed a, a reason to bring him back on and drag him back on and i know this past year I mean, for all of us, it's been a bit of a weird year, but particularly for you, Paul, because you competed in 2020, right? So how yeah. how's that whole year? How's it all been for you? I know you've been coaching a lot. That's really picked up because if, for those who don't know, Paul last came on because we we're talking about a lot of your graduate research um, into like reps and reserve and things. So yeah, give the, well, give me an update. <laughs> give the listeners an update. What's, what's 2020 been like for, for you, Paul? honestly just miserable man um <laughs> no it's been a good year there, there's some good and some bad you know because when i started the contest prep or whatever um none of the closures and stuff had happened yet with covid and then it all just kind of came and there was a lot of uncertainty you know yeah. like so much uncertainty that like clients were asking like hey sh should i compete this year and i'm just like i don't know like probably not to be honest like uh we we really don't know what's going on and and shows are getting canceled left left and right you know and so it's like you know and i even crossed that bridge with myself where it was like am i gonna diet and get like really lose months that i could have been like growing and enjoying my life and stuff um just to like have a show canceled and scramble around yeah. and or whatever um but i just kind of i was like you know what just kind of keep going with it. Like whatever happens, happens. If it's not looking good when I cross like a certain threshold, like maybe I'll just not compete and ended up going, going through with it. And uh, overall it was a rough ride, dude, you know, because like already being a coach, I sit at home. All, my girlfriend goes to work, dude, and it's just me. It's just me yeah. and these two dogs. One of them is kind of an asshole. And um, <laughs> like I, I literally play stuff like blaring on the TV all day so I don't like lose my mind, right? And so already like some of my, especially in the beginning when people are actually like really afraid to hang out and stuff. And, you know, you want to be somewhat considerate because your 20-year-old friend might take care of their like grandma every day you know, or something. Um, and so the little bit of social interaction I had just completely stripped away. And I'm also going into this prep where, um, you know, t people tend to seclude themselves anyway, which is weird. It's like kind of a time where you do need like some support and you're like, everybody yeah. get the fuck away from me. Um, and, uh, so yeah, man, it, it got real weird, real fast. I, coaching already kind of makes you weird you know just not really at least for me not being around people that much yeah and then they get pulled away and, and now i hang out with people i'm like i don't even know how to act around you now i'm just kind of an <laughs> asshole like um so uh yeah man it, and it got it was it was my first show ever and uh oh really i didn't know that yeah yeah, yeah. what a year oh man deep end <laughs> yeah 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 and um you know, balancing coaching got a lot rougher than I thought it would. You know what I mean? Um, just kind of like I, I thought that things would I was like, how am I spending so long writing programs or like replying to people and like, you know, trying to fit in the, you know, the cardio or the steps and then the training and then like, you know, laying on the couch and being like, all right, I'm going to reply to everybody that's like sent me a text in the last four hours. And you're like, how did that take an hour of my life? 
And then, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And just sometimes not even just wanting to deal with people like yeah. at all, yeah. you know? Uh, so yeah, man, it, it, it was a, it was a tough balancing act. Um, the, you know, it, it, it wouldn't be like, I, I definitely don't want to say it was easy, especially because, um, like I, I, I could have definitely been leaner. I could have definitely been a good bit leaner, you know, um, but like not beating myself up too, too hard, like, you yeah. know, first show or whatever. Um, but, um, you know, like, it's one thing if like, man, if you just had not shit to do all day, you know, <laughs> like, like if you could just like train and then sit on your couch, some things become harder when you, when you're not that busy, like, you know, being food focused is a little worse when you don't have anything going on. But like, I was just like so busy all the time that like the, the actual just dieting part didn't really get really hard until like the very end. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but what, what makes prep so hard is when you have people that rely on you you know, and, you know, that need things from you and you are in a position where you can't stop, which is like most people anyway, you know, like even if they don't have a full roster of clients, they have like a family that depends on them and stuff, you know. Um, but yeah, that that's what makes prep really tough, in my opinion, is just, you know, just keeping all the other shit in your life together. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly a balancing act. And I, I sometimes think... At least, I suppose it, it's a bit of a weird one because I never thought about it like that where you said, like our clients rely on us and that is actually very draining just to communicate with them and know that they're kind of needing you and needing you on your A-game because I always thought, oh, as an online coach, you really have a cushion like in terms of competing because, I mean, we're sat at home, like we have a lot of kind of pluses there. But once we finish our job, like we don't really finish the job. Like we're always kind of on call in a sense, whereas yeah. like a nine to five, I imagine it's real tough being in an office and like, I don't know, communicating with people there. But then once they kind of come home, they can do as they need. You're or off. Like, yeah, you're off. Whereas, yeah, yeah you're never off. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, because there, there were times I had like, uh, there was one part, point of prep where I was really excited to try twice a day training. And it was awesome um, it, for a couple of reasons. Like, uh, I, I actually got to experience like what you and Mike and everybody talks about, like just coming to the gym and, um, my curls and my lateral raises. I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. Like, I feel so good for these, you know, where usually yeah. they come an hour and 15 minutes into my workout and I've already done a bunch of multi-joint lifts or whatever. Um, and then a second side benefit was I, steps were a big part of my, um, uh, like activity or expenditure or whatever. I like got a 30% increase on my daily steps easily just going to the gym twice a day, you know, so which eliminated me having to do a bunch of extra cardio. But then at a certain point, like I said, work became so long and became, became the priority, you know, like it was because like, okay, like I don't show up in shape, which, you know, kind of sucks or whatever. Um, or, but like, I, I'm still like there for my clients and I'm a good coach and, and that doesn't fall apart. Like that's my income, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, and so not that I want to use that as, as an excuse or whatever, but yeah, man, um, there, there were just like, uh, certain, certain things like that, you know, change. And it's like, you know, that, that work extending, I'm like, okay, now I, I really need to just do one session a day you know, because that takes time out of your day, going to the gym in the morning. Like it, it's not just the time you're training, but like the meal, getting ready to go to the gym, driving to the gym, coming home from the gym, being kind of tired and being like, I just need to like lay down for like 45 minutes before I start work. And then you got to repeat that later, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I definitely feel you on that. I've been lucky again for me, like, I, I, it's like those little considerations you don't really think of like the commute and all of that. I've always lived very close to a gym that I can just walk to. So like twice a day training was never like a, a big thing for me. And then again, I don't have kids or massive commitments. Um, I can very much own my own time, but like people can't do these things. So I think for, especially like you said, you're a first time competitor, but you were by no means ignorant to what it would take. I'm sure a lot of this stuff you kind of expected to see, whereas you see people get into this and they're just like oh yeah that looks cool like Paul said it wasn't that hard it, it seemed like something I could do it's like uh 
not till you try and go through all of this do you realize how much like it's super selfish at the end of the day like to have to be in control of all those variables it's so super time consuming as well absolutely dude and you know um because like ultimately what made it easier is that like i've just been lifting and dieting for a long time lifting over a decade and then you know my first real serious strategic um you know diet with a good method was like 2012 or something um and i've had many diets since then um and so i've gotten a lot of practice you know like if this was 2012 or 14 or 16 and i had done this prep it probably would have been god awful more painful than it needed to be but and then also like i'm a coach and i've worked with competitors and i work alongside other coaches that work with competitors and so there's a lot of experience flowing around in there from different avenues um and i've learned so much about myself and you know things like implementing um you know, diet breaks and things like that, just a lot of stuff to, to make the diet feel easier. So, and, and granted, ultimately, like, I, I, I still could have worked harder and it probably should have sucked a little more than it did, but most of it just, you know, it wasn't that bad um, or as bad as it could have been for most first timers. Yeah. I think it's, I definitely feel you for not pushing to that point where like you feel like you could have pushed harder but you didn't because i i feel you for that because like the uncertainty of covid is like how can you it's very hard to convince yourself first of all if a show is even there in in the first place like it's hard like it's a hard process to like for like forcibly be in a calorie deficit and make yourself starve and get to those like low calories but when you don't know if that show is a hundred percent going to go ahead to convince yourself no this is still I should still do this is, I mean, I can see why that was hard, a hard, like when you weigh up the pros and cons, <laughs> the, the pros yeah, are quite low. <laughs> there were a lot of factors. There's that. And then there's even like that stupid side of me. That's like, oh man, I feel like I'm like getting smaller, you know, like maybe right. I should slow <laughs> yeah. things down. Like maybe, you know what I mean? Like maybe I shouldn't drop food this week when like maybe that food drop needed to be there. Um, and you know, like there, there's stuff that like, if, if it were like a client, I'd be like, uh, I mean, I feel you, but literally the worst thing that can happen on stage is you're not in shape. So like, you need to focus on getting in shape, but you know, like when it's you and you're just like, oh no, like all this precious muscle, you know, you get in your own head a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, a lot, there, there are a lot of things there and I did a lot of weird stuff this prep that, um, What's cool, man. I mean, it's cool to make mistakes too, because I feel like me and the other coaches that um, I work with and that worked with me on the diet, we all learned a lot from my prep. Cool. Um, so that was really good, man. What were some of the main lessons you think? Um, dude, so it, it was really weird prep, right? Like, so I started off way, way too fat, right? Um, so <laughs> I started off way too fat. Uh, like, uh, I think I was like 243 or something like that. And uh, I weighed in at the uh, venue at like 198. Uh, so that was 45 pounds or yeah. so, right? And so the first 12 weeks, we're losing fast, man. Uh, I lost like 25 pounds uh, the first 12 weeks. So you know, roughly a little over like two pounds a week, yeah. but it's, it's not, it's not linear like that. Like some, some weeks you lose, like when you're going fast, you lose like three or four pounds. And then, you know, one week it's like one and a half and then you lose two or three, like uh, some weeks you don't lose anyway. And then you pull some food and then you lose like three or four again. Um, so yeah, uh, went really fast. And what uh, I was looking at myself, you know, um, sort of, you know, a lot of people that have like seen this before or know me like being enhanced or whatever started um, on sort of a cruise, which was somewhat of a mistake too for going a little faster. Um, and, you know, I saw myself after losing 25 pounds and looking at old photos, I'm like, this isn't looking right. Like, this is not how, this is not my body, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and uh, like, I, you know, I had some friends that after I brought that up, they were like, yeah, I didn't want to say anything, but I was like, this, this isn't looking like it's, it's going well at, or right. Like, I did not expect you to look like this at this body weight. Um, 
and so I took uh, eight weeks um, to sort of reverse and at one point go slightly above uh, maintenance. And it was really cool, man. Um, at first, I, you know, and I, I took tape measurements and all those things and, you know, monitored body weight, all that. Um, I got a little leaner over the first few weeks and the circumference of, you know, the, the sites I was measuring, arms, chest, legs, things like that were um, increasing in circumference. And then towards the end, I gained a little fat, but matched where I, I started that reverse. So my waist was about the same at the very end, but I went up from like 218 to 228 um, with the same size waist. And then I, after that, I was like, okay, the rest of this diet, we're picking a new show, the rest of this diet, we're going slow this time. And that's what kind of got me to like, I, I should, there were points I should have moved a little faster to show up in shape, but I was so just, just scarred by that first 12 weeks. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and uh, so by the time I came back to down to 218, where I started, so 218 to like 218, 219 to about 228, back down to 218 several weeks later, um, my inch, my waist was like something like an inch and a half smaller than it was the first time at 218, you know? Um, so probably over that period, there was some sort of muscle regain and then, you know, some filling out and all that stuff. And then taking it slower was, uh, seemed to be a better approach to me. And something I've noticed in the past too, like even back being completely natural, um, I remember uh, sort of doing slower diets and faster diets. And it, even though it wasn't like stupid drastic, I, I was always happier with the way I looked after a slower diet. Right. You know, have you noticed that? Um, Maybe not. I don't know how... No, I don't know if I've done enough dieting and everything to really know, actually. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done. I've always just done like, if I'm fatter, I go faster. When I'm leaner, I'll go a bit slower. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it kind of makes sense to me. Like after a mini cut, certainly isn't my best look. Uh, yeah, just because yeah. you're just so flat and depleted and you're still kind of a bit fat. So it just doesn't look great. Uh, so yeah, yeah. no, I, 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 but I can see how it happens for sure. Yeah, I've always noticed that like if I lose 15 pounds, you know, half a pound to a pound a week, right, um, tend to have just a much better look than if I lose 15 pounds over like, I don't know, um, like six weeks or something. But I mean, there's a huge trade off there. Uh, 15 pounds at a half a pound to a pound a week is, is kind of a long time for not that much weight loss, you know. Yeah. So, but um. Yeah, man. So that was cool because, and something we learned, I don't, I don't know how, how much you want to talk about the enhanced side. Do you, is that? Uh, we don't tend to touch on it much, but if there's like a cool insight, I think people will appreciate it. So feel free to like, at least talk well, about it. A I little mean, bit. It's just like, you know, there, there are a lot of assumptions that a lot of people make and, and you know, people are different, like varying genetics or whatever. Um, but like a lot of people just sort of assume like, okay, if somebody's enhanced, you know, that's just sort of like an immediate safeguard for muscle. You diet yeah, as hard as sure. you want, you, you keep all your muscle alike or, or you get bigger and, uh, you know, like forget there, there, there's like this anabolic cost and, th and that's food and recovery and sleep and, and things like that. And uh, so, I mean, it's like having, um, you know, a bunch of you, you call up a bunch of builders and they're ready to build your house, but they don't, they don't have the supplies. You know, like the signals going, but, but you don't really have all the supplies you need. So yeah, man, um, it, it just sort, sort of gave some insight and some more questions as to like, Hey, you know, how, how can this be used to sort of benefit us in the future? Is it better? Like, can we go fast and then salvage some of that in the middle or the very end? Do we want to be early? Like, is it worth it to be ready early, diet super hard, and then maybe try and eat into the show? Um, but like that, that sometimes isn't, usually that's a rare circumstance that you get an opportunity to do that. Um, or yeah, I mean, just the utility of, of having maybe extended periods of, of food for some people, you know, some circumstances, stuff like that. Uh, and maybe just being really careful and just not think you're going to fly through an entire prep losing two or three pounds a week is probably wise. Uh, <laughs> starting leaner. That, that yeah. was a huge thing. Everybody knows that. Um, everybody says it, but it was just like real. Uh, yeah, I mean 
just start leaner. Like, I, I don't think a lot of people realize, man, like how lean sometimes, like you'll hear people say like maybe a half pound to a pound a week ish on prep, or you want to, how many ever weeks you have, you want to have that many pounds. That's already really fucking lean, you know? Like, and if you're trying to lose like a pound a week over 16 or 20 weeks or whatever, like that leaves like no wiggle room at all for if things go south. Um, yeah, man. I think a lot of people realize how lean that maybe you should already probably be before starting a prep. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Yeah, I think unfortunately a lot of people seem to like, they start prep when they're like peak mass off season. It's like, hmm, like you've just <laughs> traveled the furthest away from the end destination and now you're going to start on that journey again. So maybe travel a bit closer and then go again, which I guess no, is ultimately what you had to do. Exactly. And it was a big, uh, a big sort of kind of wake up to me in that um, I now like coming into this year kind of treating like the whole year this year coming i don't have plans on competing next year like maybe in like two years um but like i'm kind of treating this like a prep like i i want to like at the end of this year um because you know i got i have my post-show weight right now um be leaner than at the start of like this sort of improvement phase that just started for me um and then, you know, eventually over time, set myself up to when I do pull that trigger on a contest prep, I'm like, okay, like this is reasonable, you know, yeah. like, yeah. And, um, yeah, man. So <laughs> I th something you touched on was, uh, using diet breaks, I think. And something I wanted to talk about was like diet breaks and refeeds. Obviously, in a prep, they well refeeds have been used in preps for a heck of a long time. I think uh, diet breaks have been a bit newer, but obviously, like we had new data recently with Jackson Pios and the Ice Cap trial. I don't know if you've kind of seen that work. Um, and obviously, Bill, Bill Campbell did his kind of research, and like these are like almost they're, they're the best data we have so far to whether or not these things are providing good utility for us. And I guess some people might look at it and be like oh, it's all just in the mind like in the head that therefore like just be a warrior or whatever push through it don't use them you can get it done more efficiently um but i think that might be a little short-sighted i don't know if you've you used them or with clients you've used them what's been your experience dude i i really like them and some of the coaches i work with are have the opposite mindset of me um but i've just found you know, for example, there were points um, where I would do something similar to what Bill Campbell did um, with the, the two days on the weekend. And, uh, you know, for some clients I've done that with too, uh, they hate it. You know, for some reason, when they go back to dieting, it's just that next day or two, it's just so hard for them to get back to dieting. But for me, I just, I felt like I got those two days and I'm like, I'm ready for another five day stretch, you know? Uh, and then uh, other than that one kind of extended eight week break, I didn't do any full week longs with myself. I don't think. Yeah, I didn't. Um, but I've done the full week longs and sometimes two weeks with clients. And, you know, like uh, I use Christina, my girlfriend, as example, since I live with her and get to see her and really know what, what she's going through is that it was the same thing as those two days for me, but it was like, hey, I can make it through these next um, four weeks. And because I know her so well, like with most clients, I won't be like, okay, you're getting a diet break every fifth week. You know, we like, we take them when we need them. Um, but with her, I've dieted her several times. And um, I, I just, I know that she can handle it and she does well with it. Every fifth week, she just gets a diet break. And it's like, okay, um, I'll even kind of, I don't know, like diet cycle with her, like do like a moderate deficit or like, you know, drop 10% food for like a week. And then, you know, maybe leave that for another week, dig, dig a little harder third week. And it's like, Hey, fourth week, let's diet really hard because you're getting that like diet break. 
uh, week or whatever. And she can go through those cycles so many times and, and she's ready for it because of that week. And uh, I remember this last show she did and she did really well. She did two national shows and got like third and fifth and they were really competitive um, national shows or was it third and fifth, something like that. Top five both times. Um, and uh, by the end, she, she just sort of was like, honestly, this was the easiest diet I've ever done. You know, like I, I barely, I feel like I could, I could keep doing this for a while, yeah. you know, which is rare. Usually when we get to a show with her, she's like, I can't fucking wait to be done. Like, this is awful, especially those last couple of weeks or whatever. Um, so, I mean, I, I think there, there, there's obviously like a psychological benefit for some people, for some people, maybe not so much. It throws them off too much. They can't, they can't do it responsibly or whatever. Um, and then there's something I sort of like too, because I mentioned with her, like sometimes knowing that she had a diet break, we dig her a little harder for a week, um, is that I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about this. And maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody will like crush my thoughts on it. But sometimes I feel like in a prep, right? Like as a coach, you don't have the luxury a lot of times of really waiting until somebody has had like a, pla a, a real plateau. You're like, oh, you didn't lose weight this week? Fuck. Well, we have nine weeks left. I kind of need to move things along, you know? And so sometimes you make these chops that you're are, are maybe a little premature. And if it was another right. circumstance, you could wait two or three weeks and you find out like, oh, they were still in a pretty good deficit. They still lost weight. They were just maybe holding water or something that masked the weight loss or fat loss or whatever. Um, and uh, they lost weight. And so sometimes sort of what, I, what I, like I'll do, like I'll give somebody like a diet break and, you know, estimated maintenance. And sometimes like that first half of the week, they still lose a little weight. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, we're not estimated maintenance. I'll bump food up again. Or if it's two weeks long, I'll wait for the next week and make sure they're there. And then we get them to maintenance or maybe just slightly over that. Maybe they gain a little weight finally at the very end or something. And then um, it's almost like I'm like a diet reset. I'm like, let's just say I'm grabbing a number that they were at a 20% deficit before that diet break. Well, like I have you at maintenance now, let's just do a 10% and see what happens. And so they're like almost restarting the diet at high, higher calories. And it's almost like, um, and, and sometimes you just sort of find out like, Oh, we were digging harder than we needed to. And like, we just found out we don't need to. So I get to save you a little bit and maybe even, uh, have a number of weeks before we have to hit that hard of a deficit again. So I, I think that's kind of like a, a really neat thing. It's, it's almost just like a trick. It almost tricks the coach into um, taking things a little slower at points. Uh, when maybe, maybe a similar result could have happened if you were just a little more patient. Right. Does that make sense? I think so. Is that, do you think it's related to kind of the water dynamics of like, I don't know, cortisol comes up. So they're kind of plateauing because the water of retention is higher. So then you introduce like the diet break or whatever it is. And it's kind of like almost shifting that. So you kind of realize, oh, actually we lost a bunch because we were maintaining on this. So actually like we know based off these numbers or based off your scale weight, like we don't need to be in that big a deficit. It was just too much. And the scale probably would have shown itself. And I know Broderick's talked about like, you have to remove the stress for like the adaptation to show itself. It's kind of maybe something along those lines. No, yeah, absolutely. Because I see it all the time and kind of a lot why I like different rotations, whether it be like three days dieting, one day refeed or five and then two day refeed or, you know, six and one is just a lot of times defined, especially when people are digging harder and they're doing more cardio and uh, they're in a steeper deficit that you give them a refeed or two refeeds and, and they drop weight, you know? So there's definitely um, some kind of fluid shift or something becoming more visible. I don't know exactly what it is though, you know, like what yeah. it, like, is it cortisol or is it something else or, um, you know, where, where's the, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> It is it is tough, um, but I think the the best thing you said there was like some people seem to really benefit from this, other people don't so much. And I think it's when people put themselves in that like 
like pro refeed or not refeed or whatever it is diet break they just like in that camp they're like no like they're they're just psychological or whatever it is they don't have a benefit for me and then they these could be the people that are going to see this this benefit so it's definitely yeah. one of, i think like you said trial and error yeah man and then uh like sometimes because you can get a little out of hand you know and maybe slow yourself down too much um and you, you could just trust like, oh, this person's probably losing weight. Like if I just wait longer, the weight loss is going to happen. But there's value to sort of clearing up the picture a little bit and being more sure earlier and just kind of like trusting it. Like, uh, you know, and, and just, see, just seeing that clearer picture more often. Yeah, for sure. Um, to change kind of uh pace a little bit although you've talked about kind of working with your clients and everything and i think that's something that there's a lot of value in talking about like because online coaching is just becoming such a big thing and i'm sure a lot of people listening are either coaches themselves or they are considering getting a coach um and i know i kind of listened to a few episodes on the gifted performance podcast which um you're obviously on regularly because you're a coach over there so one of the things you spoke about is kind of like data that you require from clients and um, different coaches like do different things here. I know you said you use spreadsheets. I know Cliff Wilson, I don't think even regularly uses spreadsheets. Different coaches want to gather different information. What, what kind of information do you find you need? Like is the most important to you from your clients that you're gathering? Yeah, man. So uh, yeah, I use Google spreadsheets and I have these little blocks where they put in their load, their reps and their RIR and they can leave me little notes too. And I leave little notes back or whatever, if I feel like I need to. Um, and so that's first because I, I'm, I'm a big numbers guy and I like to do a lot of calculations and like predicted one RMs and stuff. And like, that's my sort of main tool of knowing that things are moving in the direction we want it to. Like you're getting stronger over time and that estimated one RM is going up over time. And when it doesn't go up and it doesn't go up for, um, you know, a block or two, a couple blocks or something like, Hey, like maybe something is wrong. Training needs to change in, in some fashion. So like that's number one. And then videos are huge too. Uh, you know, if I, something like I, I'm kind of doing with uh, some clients now, is, uh, you know, I'll give them their first day of their training and I'll say, okay, aim for a set of eight to 10 at three or four RIR, film it and send it to me. And then they film it and I, I watch a video and I'm like, what RIR do I think they're at? And then I might actually, instead of just giving them these directions to say hit a certain RIR, I might run a bunch of calculations and program numbers for them based off that. And then it also gives me feedback like, hey, how, how good is this person at gauging repetitions in reserve? Do I need to change my programming on that a little bit? Like, do I have to go ahead and assume this person's going to undershoot, you know? And like, do they need more volume or do I need to do something else to make sure they work a little harder? Um, or if somebody sort of overshoots a lot, you know, do I adjust in the opposite direction? And then I really like uh, videos for AMRAPs and stuff too. I, I don't make everybody do it, um, but, you know, especially as I become more comfortable with people, I may have them do it less, but I really like that too. Uh, so that I can see, you know, cause some people may, you know, I've gotten people who have typed in, you know, under their AMRAP, these reps were broken up. And I'm like messaging them. I'm like, how broken up are they? Like, are we talking three or four breaths between a squat? Or are we talking like you re-racked it and you sat down for, you, you stepped back for 30 <laughs> seconds and you went for it again, because that is going to change everything. And I was like, I told this person, I'm like every AMRAP until I tell you not to, I want it recorded, you know, because I can't be giving somebody an estimated max based off of like 10 reps when they can only do like six unbroken with like a big ass break. But this person said like no more than, than like two or three breaths. And I was like, okay, that, that's, that's acceptable. Um, I might chop a rep off that or something to make sure I don't overshoot for your next program and estimated numbers. Um, and then for, you know, uh, clients who are going for a big show in the near future, maybe. Um, sorry, I got like a hair in my mouth or something. Uh, oh my God. But anyway, so I may tell them like, um, each workout every week, just film one thing and send it to me, you know, and then 
you know, uh, give them whatever critiques. A lot of times I'll record myself like doing cues in my living room, or if I happen to have a training video, I send it to them. And I use this uh, app called uh, Coach's Eye, where you can uh, draw on a video and voice over, slow it down, point out certain things, stuff like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, they send it again and we fix the, the annoying thing with fixing things, uh, as an online coach, it's like in real life, like I can fix this squat like 10, 15 minutes and we're done forever. But like, as an online coach, sometimes it takes like three weeks, a, a month to fix like <laughs> a form on, on like one movement, especially like a more technical one or whatever. Um, and like, sometimes you have to intentionally like, oh man, I can't give them like six cues in one video because they're only going to remember one or two of these things. So we have to do this in stages. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, man. So videos are huge. And uh, yeah, I also try and like balance it out too. Like when I'm like, oh yeah, record one, one thing each workout. That's so I don't get like six videos in one day because that's also like a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> I have had it before. I tend to get videos similar to you. I like when someone's new, I like a lot of videos. So like that first week of training, I want them to film, especially all their compound lifts. And I just say like a set from every lift if possible. Like I had one client, I think just misread it. And he filmed every single set from every workout and sent it all across. And I was just like, oh dude, this is a lot. Like you just panic on the inside. Like you know <laughs> yeah. you're not going to critique them all, but you feel like it's just like, oh my God. <laughs> Even two times speed. That's a, that's a lot of stuff. But I, I love that you said the videos are so important to you because I think this is something that for online coaches is just so important. It's like, yeah, so much like with nutrition, you don't expect them to take photos of every meal and it's like they can just input their macros or whatever. You can get some information and that, that can be really helpful. But uh, then they're just eating food. You don't need to watch how they're eating yeah. it really. Like you're not worried about that so much. But the, the exercises, how they're performing those, super important. No, it's huge, man. And, you know, coaching, um, like I have a little over 50 clients on my roster. So kind of a lot, not, not as much as some people, you know, like I know people with like 80 plus on their roster and things fall through the cracks and like you're, you know, sometimes you're just, you've had somebody for a while. So you're just not as on them about it. And then, but I've, I've had circumstances where I've worked with somebody for like a year. Right. And then finally I'm like, dude, send me a video of this. <laughs> like they get a new movement. And, uh, I, I realized that I basically have to treat them like a brand new lifter again and reteach and, and teach them stuff that they should have been doing better for the past year. Yeah. You know, yeah. so like, it's huge. Yeah. I mean it completely. Uh, that's why I, I worry, especially with like, when you try and use things like RAR and volume increases, it's like, oh man, if I'm getting someone, even if you're getting someone to go to failure, like you want to make sure they're doing that in a safe way. Like let alone like using RAR is probably actually safer. They might not be working hard enough, but I mean, that's much less of a concern than working all the way to failure. So um, yes, super important. I'm glad that, yeah, we spoke about that. And yeah, I mean, they could be doing a completely different movement for all you know, depending on what their kind of interpretation of what a certain exercise is or something. So the fact that you have videos yeah. and stuff you can send and you mentioned coach's eye, which actually sounds, I've not used it. That that sounds really cool because like you said, in person, you can kind of tweak them a little bit. It's, it's fairly easy to get them to do the movement right. But without that, you have to kind of describe things. Maybe you stand up away from the camera and you try and like do it in your bedroom, yeah. or whatever. But uh, coach's eye sounds like something helpful because you can actually like draw on and like where they're meant to move and that you can kind of connect some dots they might not be seeing, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Like call out certain cues and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, man, it's super helpful. And honestly, for myself too, something I, I like to do, I don't do it all the time. It's sort of, but I don't know. It, it just really depends. But I kind of make it more painful for myself too because what what I really like to do is, uh, you know, the fastest way to get somebody training and not worry about it is just to give them a bunch of machines. Like, uh, here's your hack squat, here's, here's your hammer strength, uh, bench press, like whatever. But I actually try to give people stuff like flat barbell bench press, uh, dumbbell presses, squats, and stuff like that um, early on because I feel like there, there's a high transferability there. And if, if you learn how to move your body well under a squat, 
like you're going to hack squat well, like you're, or you're going to do a Smith squat well, and you're going to know how to engage your glutes and your core and all those things and forward knee travel and not sitting back and stuff like that. And, you know, where, what's good for your, and, and um, in terms of like, uh, like where your arm should be, like, I don't like to have people flare when they bench press. I like that angle a little more safer on the, or um, forgiving on the, on the uh, joints and stuff, connective tissue. And then, um, shit, what was it? Yeah, I mean, just one, having that awareness. Oh, and then also just seeing, you know, like that that's another another reason that feedback is so good um, and seeing people do a variety of movements, but also like those movements is that um, you can see how people move and shit that you might not have seen before. Like, like you, you actually get a chance to see like, oh, this person has like crazy long femurs and, yeah. you know, a certain torso length. And, and so I, I already know that a certain group of movements probably aren't the best for them. And we can kind of like stay away from that, or I can teach them how to move better, like with their own body or something like that. So that's huge too, in getting those videos early on. So you're not giving them shit that they're struggling with and maybe is not very beneficial for like a long ass time. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think you even mentioned there another reason you would is like to prevent injury. Like you said, the benching. I don't, I was thinking about this because obviously the, the incline bench uh, video with the, I've forgotten his name, but the, the guy that was benching and he ended up oh, snapping yeah. off, snapping his shit, which was horrible to see. But there's something about it. Like people have, I, I've spoken to people who are like, are you not scared to like incline bench now? I'm like, no because i mean i just watched that video and i was like i mean it just looked like trouble like there was way too much weight yeah, yeah the way he came down <laughs> like i i don't know if it's something just as a trained lifter you kind of know how to orient yourself like you talked about when you do those big compound lifts then you go into the machines and things you kind of know like what's safe like i'd never go into a, like it's just i don't feel like my yeah. body would I, i'd just know if it was a scary position to get into yeah body awareness is huge and that's one you know a lot of people uh I feel like so, somewhat recently the barbell and stuff like that has been somewhat demonized kind of, yeah. but, um, you, you gain that skill, you know, using it and learning how to move your body around it or it around your body, you know? And yeah, man. So that, I think that transferability is, is a huge skill. And even if it may not be the most beneficial to hypertrophy right now, like in the long game, it, it could be. Yeah. Cool. And something we've already spoken about, and I wanted to kind of touch on it again, was uh, RAR and kind of just going a bit deeper into it. I know we got you to do a presentation over on the member site, which was fantastic and really well received all about kind of using RARs in programming, how to kind of assess it for yourself. Um, something I don't think many people tend to talk much about is people just talk about it in like three to four RARs, like speed of the bar slows down or what have you. And nor RAR is you had no more good reps in the tank. But I think what sometimes gets missed is how this can look different potentially between lifters, uh, exercises or muscle groups. So I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts around that. Like, I don't know whether or not like you've seen some people that can just grind. Or you're like, I thought you were three RAR five reps ago or <laughs> four reps ago or something. Um, yeah, dude. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, that specific case, there's one girl that comes to mind that I coach where um, at first I thought she just was not understanding RRR. Like I, I did not get it. I'm like, why are you hitting so many grinders every single week? And then she did her AMRAP week and I got a video of it. And it's like, she did something crazy, dude, like 17 reps. And after rep like six, they all looked like one RIR <laughs> or like zero RIR. And I'm just like, dude, I don't even get it. Like, I'm sorry I put you through that too. You know, <laughs> like, um, but yeah, there's some people that grind like that. And you, you mentioned how RIR, um, or like for myself, I guess, conversely, like, especially with pressing, I'm a very fast explosive presser. And so a lot of people will look at my seven R or three RIR or two RIR and be like, man, I think you had more left than I actually do. You know, like they might even tell me, dude, I think you have like five left, but you know, I, I tend to at, at the sticking point smack into a wall, you know, when, when I hit a grinder and it's, it's right around the corner. And a lot of times you don't see it coming, but I, I feel it coming. I feel the yeah. local fatigue and, and how, and how hard, how much more effort I'm putting into maintaining that speed. Right. Um, 
and so you know yeah after some years of experience like it, it's very intuitive for me to kind of know like oh that was definitely three rir two rir really close to it um and uh you uh also mentioned the uh between different exercises how different that is and that's that's a huge struggle point for a lot of like newer lifters or even sometimes lifters i've kind of already had for a while is uh you know it's very the speed thing's very intuitive with pressing you know and uh potentially like a bicep curl or tricep extension or something hamstring curls whatever but um with some lifts like like pulling back exercises like a lot of times technique sort of breaks and, and you can still technically move that weight four or five six more times but the range of motion is cut um or you're kind of jerking back with it or something so i'll tell people like um if you reach technical breakdown, you're already at zero RIR. And so actually three RIR is probably a few reps before that technical breakdown. And, you know, you have to practice sort of getting a sense of, you know, kind of like how much effort was I putting into maintaining that bar speed? How much effort am I putting into keeping this thing moving without jerking up or, you know, shortening range of motion? And, and you know when that's coming, when you're about to cut your range of motion on, on a row, you know? Like it's getting really fucking hard, right? So, um, and then for some movements, uh, it can even be a safety issue, you know? Um, like, you know, deadlift's a really easy example of where like uh, you could probably grind out that last one or two, but are you gonna do it with a rounded uh, back, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. I, I really love that you talked about kind of how much effort you're putting into keeping that cadence there, because I think I've struggled to find the words for it, but that that like perfectly sums it up because for me, like pressing, I can kind of grind there and I know like I might have a slow one and people might think that's a two and I'm like, no, nah, I've got like four left. Whereas pull it, like pull downs for me, like it isn't like if I try and maintain the speed of which I'm pulling down, I can already feel it getting like I know now I'm using like other muscle groups or something that's coming in and visually watching it, you might just think, oh, like you've barely slowed down. It's like, yeah, but the amount of effort I'm putting in to maintain that speed that I was getting before, like I know if I do one more, I might be able to get it down. But like you said, it, it's technical failure. Other muscle groups yeah. are coming in or I've changed my form slightly into a novice eye they might not be able to identify it but you know it yourself like you said there like basically you, in the lift if you're an experienced lifter and you've gone to failure and you you know what that feels like like it, it's very yeah. easy to perceive these things uh, at least i exactly. feel <laughs> no exactly man you know uh because you know some people look at that too and being like oh like you definitely had more left you're training like a pussy but it's yeah. like no like my training is targeted i'm trying to train a certain muscle you know what I mean? Not like just move A to B uh, at all costs. And, you know, that you did now you're moving outside of your training goal for that movement or whatever. Yeah. So. Awesome. And the final question I had for you, Paul, was regarding like last time you came on, we spoke about obviously RARs and kind of applica practical application. Uh, I know. I kind of asked, uh, or rather, let me ask, have your methodologies or thoughts and philosophies kind of moved or strengthened or where, where are your, where's your head at with it all at the moment? Um, I wouldn't say, I mean, things are always kind of shifting a little bit, but I wouldn't say they, they've changed a lot. I have seen myself, I don't know, uh, a few years ago training was was a lot more conservative than it was over the past couple of years and i find myself coming actually back around to a little more conservative again and i've used throughout all of that time i've used rir but um you know i guess like effective reps that that's something that um i kind of like i like you know it keeps people training um at least hard enough and you know it, it gives some direction for people but i i don't like what a lot of people have gotten out of it you know like uh a lot of and, and you know they will sort of say 
you, everything within five hour IR is effective or whatever. And I know that a lot of people who are really big pushers of uh, effective reps, they're not saying anything beyond five RIR or, or greater than five RIR doesn't isn't effective at all. Just that you know that five reps is probably the most effective. But a lot of people sort of um, I feel like more recently sort of look at anything greater than three RIR as if it's just fucking useless, or even anything just over five RIR fucking useless. Like no stimulus, no benefit. Um, and, and I don't think that's true. And I think you can make some progress around 5RIR or maybe even a little uh, uh, further from failure than 5RIR. Um, and, and I've seen that. I've seen it in myself and I've seen it in clients. Um, and, you know, a lot, a lot of people will look at that and, and, you know, I'll type it out on the internet and they'll say something like, all right, if you like four IR, you're just warming up, you're just doing endless warm up sets. And it's like, that's not fucking true. Right. Like I have some really fucking strong guys, you know, and some not so strong people and some natural enhanced, whatever. And, but, you know, just for example, like, um, you give a, a really fucking strong guy, a four RIR squat within a, a set or two, they're at like two RIR. Like it, it, it was work. It generated fatigue. It's not just a warm up set, um, you know. And uh, it's just one of those things. And, and and it's like that's not even the argument. Like nobody's doing that. Nobody like, you know. Sometimes I will estimate a five rep from failure, and that's the start of somebody's phase, right? But like, if you're fucking good, gonna be good at this. Um, most people who are good at this are adding load over time and, you know, maybe reps and making things harder. And nobody's saying that you, you just, oh, just fucking three RIR, four RIR, five RIR, you just stay there for fucking ever, you know? Um, so yeah, man. Um, and I, I've even had weird circumstances too, where like, uh, like I have a, I had a powerlifter compete recently. Um, he had like a 1900 pound total. That's huge. Right. Um, and so at, at a body weight of like 210, um, and we trained his bench really hard and his squat really hard because he, he, especially the squat that, that was, he wanted that to be like his lift, you know, and he, um, and to make more room for training that a little harder, more often, we did not train the deadlift hard at all he rarely went beyond five RIR. A lot of it was just like technique work, slowly building up numbers. And, and the idea was that eventually it was going to get hard, but it just never really did, you know? And uh, I remember his last like single or something he pulled was like a five RIR lift. It was like six, six, 600 and something pounds, right? But he went to that meet and he deadlifted more than he had ever deadlifted in his life. I think it was like 766 pounds, right? And I mean, there's some transferability there. Like he's still training his legs hard and they strengthen some, some muscles in, in, or whatever. And he's still doing uh, some decently hard stiff leg deadlifts throughout the, the meat prep and stuff. But I mean, he didn't train that lift like hard at all. And, and actually, to be honest, it seemed like, you know, um, because also like telling a really strong power lifter, right? Like, hey, we, we got to hit one RIR on this fucking squat. And like, you know, it, they're doing a set of like five or six and their their max is over 700 pounds. Like that's really fucking hard and probably just unnecessary. Right. Like to really have them hit one RIR on like an AMRAP or something. And so like, you know, we were a little more conservative with the uh, squat than we were the bench press. And so I, what I even saw over that prep was the stuff that we didn't train as hard tend to almost get like the, the biggest increases, you know, by, by game day. And that's something I've seen in myself. I don't, I, I will train to failure sometimes, but I don't intentionally plan it like several weeks in advance or anything like a lot of people sort of will, because I've noticed my best training and my best weeks of progression have always been like at max two RIR. Once I train uh, enough weeks, like at two RIR, it's probably coming soon. And once I exceed uh, two RIR, like that decreased performance in, in su subsequent sessions, that's coming and right around the corner. And I'm, I'm forcing myself into a place where I like need to deload or at least deal with shitty performance until it rebounds itself. Um, 
So I actually, I spend most of my training. I like, I, I come out of a deload. I start my first week at four or five RIR. It's kind of add load. And I sort of somewhat intentionally try not to hit one RIR or zero RIR for kind of a, a while. And because I sort of like had this thought, like if my best training is, uh, and, and like my sort of, I guess, best PRs exist at two RIR or even greater, I'm like, why would I train to failure? Maybe I just get more better weeks of training where I can like add load. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating because there are people who are dead set on like, you have to train to failure to get like, once you're a certain level of advance and you're like, you've been training over a decade, they, there were people telling you, like, if you don't train to failure, you're not going to get the progress and adaptations. Like you have to go to that point to be able to cause a stress and adaptation. Whereas there is nothing like, anecdotally for you there's nothing supporting that and i mean there's no literature on someone like yourself at that level of advancement so it's always a a hard sell on someone but there's no literature to support that we need to go to that point either i mean like you said it kind of makes sense too because you're still trying to progress and eventually you you don't aim to fail but you eventually get to a point where you're hitting the nor rers yeah it's gonna happen you go you're you're in the gym that one day and you really want that pr you want to post it on instagram and you're like ah fuck it you know like (laughs) mid-set you're like fuck it we're going there today you know um or like some shit like i have a vacation in in a couple weeks um and so like you know i kind of don't want to train that much for vacation so i might train a little harder the week before um and just kind of like rest over that week or whatever but um it's insane to me what you just said People will, some people will argue that you have to go to failure, right? So, or you're not getting the benefit or, or whatever. And it's like, so you're saying that last rep, you're, you're weighing that out as, as greater and more beneficial than every other rep before it, every, for every single set in your workout. That's a lot of fucking work, you know, like you're saying that was meaningless, that was pointless, like, no, and some of that work was still really hard, right, and then we've even seen in the literature, or whatever, um, a couple circumstances, um, because the literature is sort of uh, fairly newer here, but where there just doesn't seem to be that much of a difference between one RIR and zero RIR, yeah. right, and to be honest, like, if I were to guess, and I, I can't say this with certainty, I, I don't, I I wouldn't expect between two and one RIR, two or zero RIR to be that much different or even three. And then, you know, probably arguably like greater than three, probably that's where we see the most differences. But like, I'm totally making up these numbers. But like, if I had to guess, right, I would probably guess it's something more like this rather than that last rep is weighted way better and more beneficial than everything else. Like maybe at five RIR, you're getting 60% of the hypertrophic stimulus. And at four IR, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, 80, three RIR, uh, 70 or 80, uh, 90, two RIR, uh, 95, one RIR, 98. And then that last 2% is like zero yeah. RIR. You know what I mean? And like, it's, yeah, man, there's a lot of shit going on in the muscle that that's happening before we even reach that last rep. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think often what's forgotten. And like you said, they're like, I mean, you've already fatigued yourself going to like the four, whatever, like this is not warming up. And when you do take yourself all the way to that, that failure repetition, I mean, some people can risk injury, push it to that point if they're really kind of headset. And then there is just like the cascade of fatigue that follows that, which is why oftentimes that just means you have to deload or whatever happens. That means now you can't go and train hard. So it's, it's kind of like, you need to find that sweet spot that you were kind of describing with I mean, dude, isn't it kind of even still a beautiful thing? Like, even if, you know, we get, because there's, there's really just not enough data um, to, to really draw strong conclusions from the research. And then there's problems with the research, just, you know, that's, that's its whole own conversation. But, um, you know, like, let's say training shy of failure is just the same. There's no benefit for hypertrophy. It's just the same as training to failure. Like, isn't that kind of better? Like if you have to risk injury less, or you can still get a really good session if you're not feeling it that day and you don't have to slam like a super pre-workout and like, you know, think about like horrible things happening and you fighting for your life under that bar <laughs> or whatever, like that, that's kind of still better. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, man, um, there, there are some advantages there. And then I think those people also forget that fatigue and the stimulus and the stress that you sort of induce on a muscle. It's accumulative. It's over an entire workout. Yeah. It's never up to just one set, you know, or whatever. So. For sure. 
no, I, I definitely see, I definitely see it. I, it's hard though, because I guess this is where people talk about psycho, like psychology, and there's some people who are just wired where they feel like a don't know worthless piece of shit if they haven't taken it to failure and they've left like anything on the table within that session. Whereas I kind of love those sessions where I'm like, that was really good, very stimulative, and I know I can beat it. And it's like I really enjoy that, but I guess it's people's preferences. No, and that's the thing, man. Well, for one, I. I think that we would, if we were to like watch these people for every single workout, they probably don't take everything to absolute failure. But I mean, like what, what really, and, and this is why I sort of think that probably we're seeing so far that, um, I mean, there are some studies showing like non-failure to be better and, you know, um, you know, some that failure might have a slight advantage or fucking whatever. But I, I feel like we're kind of largely sort of seeing that it, it can be fairly similar, at least in the populations and the current study designs or whatever. Um, is that, um, shit, I lost my train of thought. What were, wait, we got to get this going again. What, what were you just saying? <laughs> I think I was like preferences. Oh, I got it. Um, but the, the reason why I feel like, or a potential reason that, that we're seeing similar things is that, um, you know, one, I, I'm, so I want to say this real quick. I, I'm with you. I, I really, I really like doing RIR and just really, it, it sets you up so well to sort of see more PRs more consistently, right? Versus like going to failure, like the body is is really good at sort of regulating itself. And you know, like if you um, train super duper hard, you know, you might come in for that next session and you, you're not able to do the same amount of reps that you did before. You know, there, there's that, you know, whether it's central nervous fatigue, peripheral nervous fatigue, whatever, it's some fatigue exists, it happens. Um, and so in that sense, for that session, they, even though you're not intentionally training with RIR, your body's kind of forcing you to, yeah. right? Um, and so, it, like, to me, I say that that person that trains a failure every session, they're just going to have less good sessions over time, probably, you know, and defining good as in, you know, uh, sessions where they see that improved performance, most likely. Um, but, you know, they, that, even though they couldn't do you know, um, as many reps as they could in a position where that fatigue wasn't masking their fitness, like it still was an effective workout and they still got um, something out of it. And so probably over time, things are fairly equal, but doesn't that suck? Like if uh, like one, our, our best measure of how well things are going is sort of seeing that load on the bar increase or performance increase in some capacity. If you have more like workouts where you can't really tell if that's happening. Um, and then also that just sucks. It's just so much fun to see PRs, dude, you know? Yeah. For like sure. I know for me, if I go to the gym and I just really underperform, I'm just like, that was awful. The whole workout sucked. I didn't, I didn't PR my bench press today. Everything sucks. I'm glad it was the end of the day. Cause if I did this in the morning, would have fucked up my whole day. Yeah. Like. <laughs> no, I definitely feel you. I, I definitely like the idea of like, like I spoke about it's, you feel like you can have a good session today. You know, you've got another one in you next week, next week, next week. And eventually you hit that ball uh, and you're going to have to deload. And like you said, like the people trained to failure, like their bodies deload kind of for them or they force them to have a, a lighter session here and there because like you can't just push to the limits all the time. Um, Paul, this has been a great chat. Um, I don't want to take too much of your time and I think people will have really enjoyed this. If people want to learn more about you, uh, where should they head? I know, yeah, you talked about online coaching and everything. So uh, yeah, make sure to tell people where they can reach you. Yeah, man. Um, so my Instagram, Polly with an IE underscore rocket and then uh, the gift of performance Instagram as well. And then gift of performance also has a website. If you do want to apply for coaching through me or any one of our coaches, um, yeah, gift of performance.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I'll make sure that's all in the description box so people can kind of access that easily. And yeah, I guess we'll talk to you soon guys. Yeah. Bye.
So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. The Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another, a really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. It's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.